Well, we started this season of Illuminators in a flashy new studio. We end this season at home, distancing ourselves from a worsening pandemic. I am here in a modified utility closet. Devrin, where are you? Hey, Stephen. You know, I'm actually in my bedroom. It's the only room in our house that has carpeting, and I have the closet doors wide open to try to soundproof. And you might actually hear my husband in the background. He's making some masks so he can go grocery shopping. (laughs) Sign of the times. Uh, Brad, looks like you're there in some kind of closet space. I am very much in my closet, Um, although now that I'm thinking about it, this is the most quiet my house has been in the past four weeks. So I might come up here and hang out every now and again just to uh, escape the craziness. We got to do what we got to do to keep operations running no matter what the conditions. And that is, of course, what this show is all about. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and forces transforming the business of energy. In this series, we talk with the founders, executives, and decision makers at the forefront of disruption in energy. What other stories tell us about this crazy competitive business world we find ourselves in? I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm Devin Hobbs. And I'm Brad Langley. This is the final episode of the season, the second season of Illuminators. And like a lot of things that get upended in the world of business, this one isn't ending exactly as we planned it. And I suppose that's fitting for the theme of this episode, because we've got a story about a wind entrepreneur who faced his share of derailed plans. Now, before we get there, I'm curious, have either of you built anything well in isolation these last few weeks? Devin, what about you? Yeah, actually, um, my husband and I just started building a raised planting bed in the backyard so we can grow a vegetable garden. Right now, all I've done is dig a whole bunch of holes in the grass so we can get the thing level, but (laughs) looking forward to vegetables soon enough. Brad, what about you? So I'm a terrible builder of things. Uh, Usually requires me about four trips to the Home Depot to figure something out. Uh, But I did um, paint both of my kids' rooms and took that as a chance to purge some of their old stuff. Um, My daughter chose creamsicle orange for her room. Um, Maybe she is telling us that she's getting a little bit uh, stir-crazy with the... uh, with this shelter in place based on that decision. We should pick a color for Brad to paint that closet. <laughs> <laughs> like A polite blue. <laughs> lo- yeah. All right. Well, I am terrible with my hands. I have not built anything aside from hang more studio foam in this utility closet. Um, but I spoke with a guy who has built a lot of really complicated things. He thrives on building complex things in difficult environments. His name is Michael Skelly. And we started with a few of our own complications, getting him set up on a mic in a Houston studio. Right now you're muffled, and then just a second ago you were clear. I think what's going on is I have the uh, earbuds underneath the head the the headphones. Yeah. So maybe if I switch and just have one headphone and one earbud, that might be better. Is that good? Michael is currently a senior advisor at a financial advisory firm called Lazard. Now on paper, that might not sound super exciting, No offense, Michael. But Michael is like the Clark Kent of renewable energy. He's this even-keeled, glasses-wearing businessman on the outside, but underneath, he is a wind pioneer and one of the great risk-takers in energy, even if he isn't a household name. In fact, an entire book was written about his journey and published last year. It's appropriately called Superpower. It's all about Skelly's mission to build a 700-mile clean energy transmission superhighway and what happened when he grappled with the political and market forces stacked up against him. 
Okay, that sounds interesting. I'm curious, how did he go from mild-mannered financial advisor to this renewable energy superhero with a book about him? We've heard some great origin stories in this podcast. I get the feeling we're about to hear another one. Yeah, and Michael would probably dismiss being called a superhero because he is a really low-key guy with a lot of ambition. But he does have a really good origin story. And I think a good place to start is the Peace Corps in Costa Rica. That's where Michael found himself in the 1980s after college, working on an economic redevelopment program. And the Peace Corps was like a training ground for everything that would come later in his business career. Peace Corps really relies on people landing in locations and then figuring out how to make themselves useful, Uh, which, by the way, I think it's a great skill to learn. It's really hard. The first six months are especially hard because you get there and nobody knows really why you're there. You don't really know what to do. And that skill, actually, when I, whenever I'm building companies and so on, if, if there are Peace Corps volunteers in the pile of resumes that come in for positions, uh, I'd always give those folks a bye to the finals because I've, my thought has always been that if, if you can sort of land in the middle of nowhere and figure out how to make yourself useful, then that's a pretty good skill and a pretty good uh, measure for people's ability to be self-starters, uh, figure things out, uh, be useful, et cetera, et cetera. So Michael wrapped up his service, came back stateside, and went to Harvard Business School in 1989. There, he met a guy who dreamed of building something that no one had done a ski lift in the middle of the jungle. Wait, I'm sorry. A jungle ski lift? Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> a jungle ski lift. You you probably know it as a tram. <laughs> I love it. You know, you hear these stories about ambitious people coming out of business school and starting software companies or joining one of the big management consulting firms. Instead, Michael goes and builds a ski lift of all things. Yeah. So this was at the right time. It was the early 90s And the concept of ecotourism had started to flourish. And this fellow he met was ahead of the trend. The idea was to give people a low-impact view of the rainforest and then give them a deeper appreciation for it. So this ski lift allowed them to just ride over the canopy. But building it in a low-impact way was not easy. Basically, what we did was we built a mile-long ski lift that takes people on an aerial tour of the rainforest canopy. And this was right when this idea of ecotourism was emerging. In other words, the idea that, you know, if you can figure out ways for people people to make a living off an intact rainforest, that will help to preserve the forest over the long term. And then we had to go through the process of acquiring the land, permitting, engineering something that had never been engineered before, building a ski lift in a rainforest with heavy foundations um, with uh, pretty heavy towers, all the logistics of doing that in an extremely sensitive ecological environment that you wanted on day one when you opened your doors, you wanted people to come on for a ride on the tram and be scratching their heads about how the heck did these guys build this thing in the middle of nowhere because this forest is perfectly intact. Now, I understand that you didn't just have to acquire the land. There was another complication. You had to acquire helicopters through a Sandinista guerrilla. Yeah, that was a that was a uh, strange. So we looked all over. I looked all over for a helicopter in Mexico and 
Colombia and Panama and so on. And then, and, and my friends in Costa Rica kept saying, dude, you got to go to Nicaragua. They have those big Russian helicopters there. So I finally uh, go to Nicaragua through a, uh, a friend who'd been at the Kennedy School, uh, who had also, who had been uh, a guerrilla with the Sandinistas. He connected me with the head of the Air Force. The head of the Air Force sort of had to take the meeting because of his friend. And uh, he said he would do this. It didn't happen. The helicopter didn't show up. So finally, I, you know, I told my wife that uh, I was off to Nicaragua and I was going to come back in that helicopter. So I went and basically sort of sat in this guy's office for 10 days. Uh, and I'd bring in a book and read it. And, you know, every other day or so, things would sort of inch forward. But at the end of 10 days, uh, I was flying back to. Costa Rica in this big Russian MI-17 helicopter. In in about a week and a half's time, we were able to transport all of the heavy components of the aerial tram uh, into the rainforest, erect the towers. Uh, basically, we flew the towers in in one piece, lowered them down onto the foundations, which we'd been building over the previous 12 months. And uh, that's when we knew that we were actually going to be able to build this thing. What? That's some crazy dedication. I know, right? I couldn't believe that story. And that persistence definitely served him well. The tram experience, navigating these complex logistics on a first-time project, got him really interested in building infrastructure for good, for a good purpose. And that brought him to another burgeoning industry in the mid-1990s, wind. Later in the 90s, you got into the wind industry how did you make that leap? So after after the aerial tram, so I ran that project for about a year and uh, realized that, you know, I liked the operations part, but I, what I really liked was developing things and building things. Through uh, some of the folks involved in the aerial tram, I met up with uh, a company called New World Power, and it was a company that... Uh, got into wind, solar, hydro uh, in on three different continents and with the promise that renewable energy was about to happen. And, you know, like some of the other earlier ventures in renewables, it just, we just went too hard, too fast, and the wheels came off after, I don't know, five or six years. I came in sort of toward the tail end um, when I think many people probably thought it was, including my wife, that it was not a great idea, but I thought I could help sort of right the ship. But uh, we were not successful. New World Power ultimately folded up, and then uh, that I learned a lot, however, in the process of, you know, working with this company for about eight months as as we sort of wound up projects and sold things off. And in in hindsight, coming off the tram, I thought, well, I've built this really cool project in the rainforest. I can do anything. I can help fix this. And in, in, in point of fact, it was probably a little bit too far gone at that point. Why wind at this time? I mean, you could have gone into any number of industries that were mature, that had the same kind of complex infrastructure development that you seemed to like. Wind was certainly growing and at the precipice of something, but it wasn't a sure bet at this point. Why wind? 
Well, uh, I was interested in wind at the time because, I, I don't know, I, I think there's just something almost poetic or romantic about taking the wind and turning it into electric power. I mean, you, you talk to children about wind energy or solar energy, for that matter, and you explain sort of how it works, and they go, well, that makes a ton of sense. Like, that's really cool. So that, at a sort of raw emotional level, was just kind of a cool thing. And uh, I was attracted to, to uh, wind energy because of the, you know, sort of the the ultimate product is is a commodity, but it's a fundamentally important commodity. And then everything that that it takes to put together a project to produce that from the social dimensions, the policy dimensions, technical the grid, finance, legal, putting together that whole jigsaw puzzle, uh, I think it's just fascinating. And then the end product is like, it's super important. All right. It's pretty obvious that Michael really likes complicated things. Yes, he definitely does. But at this stage in his career, he's still unaware of just how complicated things are going to get. Okay. So he goes to this budding wind company, a company that ultimately implodes. So what next? Well, it's the late 90s at this point. There are more and more commercial wind farms emerging, but the industry is still really small. And through one of his connections, he meets this father-son pair in Houston who'd gotten rich in oil and gas. They were looking for the next big investment opportunity, which they thought would be building wind projects. Michael joined their tiny team as chief development officer. And over nearly a decade, he helped grow the company, which later became known as Horizon Wind, into a multi-billion dollar developer, basically out of scratch. And it was eventually sold to Goldman Sachs and later to the global mega utility EDP. It was one of the most important businesses during this early growth period of the wind industry. What does it look like when a company at the precipice of the this stage of growth in wind goes from a couple people to such a massive developer that eventually gets sold to Goldman Sachs for billions of dollars. What does that arc look like? To be totally honest, like we had no idea that this would ever happen. We just thought it would be pretty cool and interesting and fun to build some wind projects. And all of a sudden, you know, we found ourselves uh, in an industry that was growing like wildfire. And Michael Zilka's uh, theory was that let's just go build a fantastic company. We don't know where this industry is going to go. We don't know what it's going to look like. But let's build a company that from its people to the way it does projects to its relationships with landowners, with regulators, with the supply chain, financing parties. Let's just build a company that that is as good as it can possibly be across every dimension. And then if indeed this industry takes off, the industry probably won't take off, but if it does, let's have the company that when somebody looks around this industry in four or five or six years or whenever, and they want to invest, they'll say, I want to buy Zilka Renewable. Sure enough, uh, in 2004, at around the time that you know, we were looking at our 2005 construction schedule and the many hundreds of millions of dollars that needed to go out the door. We we quite we went to, to the family said, okay, guys, this is what we've got to do next year. And they said, we can't do that. We just can't do it. So we called uh, Goldman Sachs and said, hey, can you guys help us figure this out? 
And they called a day later. Other people at Goldman said, well, we have a good idea for you. You should sell the company to Goldman. So Goldman bought the company in 2005 and uh, very quickly put you know, a billion plus dollars into it for, to, to get the projects built that we had, you know, obviously slated for construction and really stepped on the gas. And uh, then we got, in short order, we were a little bit, uh, I think in 2006, the end of 2006, uh, we showed up as a footnote in Goldman's financial statements because of the huge uh, down payments that we made for, for wind turbines. And I think somebody at Goldman said, hey, this is this is getting a little bit too big. We could tell, you know, at that particular moment in time, and the, and the industry's been up and down through many cycles uh, since, and obviously many cycles to come, but at that particular moment in time, uh, turbines were getting more expensive. It was tremendous competition from new European entrants. Um, utilities were starting to build projects themselves, and uh, Goldman decided that this was getting to be an industry that was a little bit too big for them. So they decided to sell, and uh, uh, ultimately EDP bought us in, uh, in the summer of 2007. So did you learn anything about yourself or your management style as you grew that fast? I think if you had asked us at the time, we would have said, we are absolutely the right team to build this company, to do everything uh, exactly the way we've been doing it, and so on. Um, in hindsight, you know, when EDP came in, I uh, left to run for Congress. Uh, some people stayed around, other people didn't. EDP brought in their people. They they did a, a really good job of sort of uh, consolidating the business and putting process in place and so on, which, you know, quite honestly, I, I might not have been the best guy in the world to do all that. The other t- big takeaway from that experience is we had the right capital at the right time. So we had family capital that was willing to take, you know, br- pretty big bets. And we were taking some of the bigger bets in the industry in terms of, you know, sort of development expenses that were hanging out there or big, big land positions that probably most people wouldn't have felt comfortable with. But we had family backing and they just sort of pushed the I believe button and off we went. You know, to this day, the thing that I've liked the most is, again, this this jigsaw puzzle. But thinking about the jigsaw puzzle as it will unfold over a period of time, um, that's the part that I've perhaps enjoyed the most. Can we hit pause on something that he just kind of threw in there? He leaves the wind business to run for Congress? Yes, that is exactly right. He had been in the wind business for a long time, and in 2008... He threw himself into politics. He was a successful businessman, and he really felt like he could turn that experience into helping the country during this period of financial and economic crisis. And he ran against a Republican incumbent in Texas who was vulnerable. Um, And his message focused a lot on energy diversity. He really played up his success as a wind tycoon. This is our dad, Michael Skelly. He started a wind energy company. That grew into one of the biggest in the country. Powering nearly a million homes. Now he's running for Congress. Because he thinks Washington can do a lot more to solve the energy crisis. Like more renewable energy, because the oil won't last forever. He talks about that all the time. It's why he's working with Mayor White. To create jobs building energy efficient buildings. He's Michael Skelly. And he'll be great in Congress. 
I'm Michael Scali, and yeah, I approve this message. In 2008, you decided to run for Congress. You hadn't run for office before. Um, seems like there's a pattern here in your career so far that is throwing yourself headlong into new things where you just figure it out as you go. Tell me about that decision to run for Congress. Well, it was... It sort of just hit me. I mean, I'd always been interested in politics, but it sort of hit me after we'd sold the company that, um, you know, I actually had the ability to take a year off and do this, that uh, it felt important that, you know, every, Howard Dean's thing was like, we got to contest every single race. I happened to live in a race in a district where uh, the Republican incumbent had been there forever. And everybody thought it was impossible to win, but I thought, you know, if if uh, if competitive elections are important to democracy, and I've got at least some shot, then I should give it a go. And so I jumped into that. I remember a conversation with uh, also with Howard Dean at the time, and he said, you know, tell me because when you're, you know, a reasonably promising candidate, and you're running in a district that's maybe. Uh, really difficult to win, they do sort of roll out the red carpet for you and you meet all the party leaders and so on as they coax you gently into running. And so Howard Dean was uh, telling me, I explained my background to him, and he said, oh, you'll be fine. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you're, you're like, a, you've been an entrepreneur, you'll, you'll know how to do this. Um, and he explained that sometimes business people who get into to running for office, they show up and they you know, they think the party is going to pour all these resources on them and has this infrastructure that they can plug into and, and you know, offices and assistants and systems and all that. And he said, like, we got none of that. You know, it's you and that yellow pad in front of you, and that's where you start, and then you got to go figure it out. I was sort of comfortable in the world of me and my phone and my yellow pad. That kind of got me comfortable with the whole idea. Well, was... That initial advice about why you might thrive in that environment true? Did you thrive when it came to campaigning in that kind of environment? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I lost, so I didn't thrive that much. <laughs> um, but but I did. Uh, I liked it. I mean, I liked the fast pace, and I liked the the sort of entrepreneurial nature of a campaign. You know, you got to put together, it's like any other startup. You got to put together a team. Um, You've got to find some money. You got to figure out how to channel those limited resources. You got to have a message, et cetera. Um, With the difference that it all, you know, at 7.15 on November 4th, it all comes together or not. And in my case, it did not. Did you think you were going to win? What what did you think would happen? I think everybody who runs for office thinks that they're going to win. So, yeah, of course I thought I was going to win. I had some doubts, of course, but, you know, we just didn't, you know, you don't, you, at that point, you know, in the final days, you're kind of running pretty blind because it doesn't make sense to put money uh, into polling. Uh, you're much better off putting your money into advertising or mail or whatever. So, um, yeah, of course we thought we were going to – I think we were not – it wasn't a shocker that that uh, that I lost. Now, it, did, it turns out that 10 years later in that same district, uh, a woman named Lizzie Fletcher 
finally beat the guy that I had run against. So perhaps I was just 10 years ahead of my time. Okay, so being ahead of his time in win paid off, but in this case, it didn't. So what did he do next? Well, Michael, of course, didn't win his election, but someone else who loved renewables did. That person was Barack Obama. So after Obama got elected, Michael traveled to D.C. trying to get his name considered in the administration to work on clean energy issues. He found it really difficult. He just wasn't getting any traction. But in the meantime, I spent, uh, while I was sort of trying to get my name out in D.C., I spent a lot of time trying to figure out, like, what's the next thing? What's the biggest challenge in renewables? And I kept coming back to transition, transmission. And I'd spent a decent amount of time in transmission because that was a necessary thing to do if you're developing wind farms, even back then. And uh, that gave birth to the idea of starting Clean Line Energy uh, in the spring of 2009. Clean Line Energy. This is the transmission company that Michael co-founded with colleagues from his wind development days. The idea was simple. Build hundreds of miles of direct current transmission lines to get wind from the Midwest to utilities in the Southeast. It was a way to get renewable energy to a coal-heavy region. What we set out to do was develop a transmission line that would go these 750 miles and deliver super low-cost power to the Tennessee Valley Authority. Uh, The TVA has has a great transmission system. So from there, you'd be able to move power uh, both to TVA for their use and uh, from TVA, you could move it on to Southern Company and different utilities throughout the southeastern United States. Michael knew it was definitely not going to be easy, but it seemed like the political and market conditions were aligning just right to support this kind of project. Recall 2009 gas prices were like six or seven bucks. Wind technology is getting better and better. Uh, It was thought that carbon legislation was headed our way very quickly. And, you know, we looked at different parts of the country. Solar was still very expensive. And we said, you know what, if if the Southeast is going to deal with its carbon challenges, we need a transmission line that will take this abundant, cheap, clean power to the Southeastern United States, and because the, the, the grid today cannot do that job. Now, think back to this era. We've all been in the energy business for a while, so you probably remember this was when there were just a ton of research papers coming out and a lot of academics theorizing about a massive national electric grid that could transport renewable energy from one part of the country to the next. There were a lot of entrepreneurs and academics talking about it, but really not that much activity because it was really hard to do. And Michael thought he would be the one to pull together the right team to actually build it. His team was really good at building towers that spanned huge swaths of land. They understood the complex patchwork of regulations that guide the U.S. electricity market, and the time just seemed right. It sort of like comes back a little bit to this congressional thing, like, okay, you can do it. You have the ability. It needs to be done. Maybe uniquely you can do this. You have to go do it. So in the case of transmission, it felt like, okay, somebody's got to figure this thing out. We're not going to figure it out with another white paper. For for this particular thing to happen, it felt like you needed a, a company that was dedicated exclusively on making it happen. Well, let's take a step back and compare your previous work on the tram to building something like, um, you know, this massive power line that stretches across the parts of the country. Uh, Were there any direct parallels that you 
were thinking you would apply or you did apply from that early work building the tram to you know uh, trying to develop this uh, power corridor? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Uh, let me think about that. I would say, well, there's obviously poles and wires. This seems to be a theme in my career. Um, there are some engineering challenges. Uh, like there were challenges early on at Clean Line, like can you inject this much power into the TVA system without causing grid stability issues? And that took a couple years to sort out. And, in fact, you can do that. Um, there were... Uh, Financing challenges. So it's it turns out it turned out with a tram that if you tell people you're going to build a ski lift in a rainforest, it's pretty hard to raise money for that. Um, and with uh, Clean Line, you know, it was always a uh, struggle to raise money, and we had investors who were you know obviously excited, invested, and then circumstances might change, or it turns out it's harder than than we thought, and they thought, and they sort of would would, uh, you know, either hang... A couple of them still hung in there with us and kept investing, but said, hey, guys, we can't do all this ourselves. you got to bring in some other folks. You know, the land issues, engineering, the financing, permitting, all of those are sort of basic things with the difference that one is 750 miles and the other is like one mile. Okay, so it seems like things were slow going, but still progressing. Knowing what I know about Michael, it seems like the kind of thing that he could stick out. Yes, uh, and he stuck it out for a long time, for nine years. Uh, He wandered around Washington, around different states, in the halls of regulatory agencies, trying to build this transmission corridor. But as anyone who follows this business knows... Building a big power line like this across multiple states and multiple energy markets with multiple investors and little public backing is a really tall order. And they start getting bogged down by legal challenges, permitting delays, and political resistance, and the years and money just start adding up. In the book Superpower, author Russell Gold meticulously details this saga, which comes to a head in early 2015. This is what Michael dubs the week from hell. Four terrible things happened, like the Missouri legislature introduced a bill to kill us. Um, Senator Tom Cotton introduced a bill in the Senate that would kill another project. We got some bad ruling from the Iowa Utility Board. And just when we thought things couldn't get worse on the Friday, this investor pulled out. You know, it said, hey, told, we told, they called their lawyers, told their lawyers, hey, put your pencils down. We're done. This thing is not going to happen. And then on Saturday, we all had gathered for a, a couple of colleagues who were getting married. They'd met at Clean Line. So that was kind of a nice way to – we thought, okay, well, at least we got this wedding on Saturday and we can go drown our sorrows or do whatever or celebrate the wedding. And at the wedding uh, of Ali and Daniel, the church caught on fire in the middle of, of the ceremony. <laughs> so um, – that was a really bad week. And, uh, but, you know, like, here's the thing. Like, if you uh, if you set out on something like this, like, you got to finish it. So we had to, you know, one field's duty bound, you know, both for the investors uh, to keep going at it as hard as you can. And plus, and maybe this is the most disappointing thing about some of the outcomes, is you get so many people behind the project because a necessary condition for projects like these to succeed is you got to have a ton of people behind them from 
business people to Sierra Club to landowners to regulators. I mean, a lot of people were helping us move this along, and a lot of people, you know, took risks to make it happen. So county commissioners who would support us, like a couple of people lost elections because they, county commissioners, because they were supportive of our efforts. And if people are willing to sort of go that far, you really feel like you got to give sort of every ounce that you've got to, to, to move these things along. So that was both inspirational, but maybe the most disappointing thing is that we, you know, we didn't deliver for those folks. So eventually it just gets to be too much. The investment falls apart. The regulation is too steep. There's way too much political resistance. And they sold pieces of the business off. And this ambitious project to prove that America could build these renewable energy corridors was turned into yet another patchwork of potential lines. So Michael and his team spend nearly a decade trying to get this project built. I mean, it's a big project, but still, we're talking 10 years of your lives. Uh, We've heard uh, so many times throughout this season, it really does take a certain kind of person to tackle the hardest kind of projects and then ultimately stick it out when most people would quit. What kept Michael going? Well, it's pretty simple, and he is pretty modest about it. I think he's just comfortable doing things a little bit differently. I mean, think back to his Peace Corps days. He's the kind of guy who would go to the rainforest after business school on a lark and eventually hunt down a Nicaraguan helicopter from the military to build a ski lift because he had to make it happen. I don't know. I just like challenges. I like trying to get uh, hard things done. I think I'm probably a little bit of a contrarian. Well, I live in Houston, Texas, and I ride my bike everywhere. But And some people think that that's crazy, but I love doing it and maybe... Uh, and I'm involved in a bunch of bike efforts here, and that's maybe a little contrarian in the Petro Metro, but I think if you do things that are a little bit contrarian, it kind of keeps your brain going and makes you think harder about things. So being in a, it's not adversarial, but being in a, being in challenging roles, I just think keeps you sort of more alive and more tuned into things. And the minute I'm not in those situations, I start to feel a little antsy. So I was really drawn to Michael's story because I've been thinking a lot about this problem that America has. We're just not very good at building big things anymore. Our infrastructure is in very bad shape. We're at this moment where, you know, in order to solve climate change, we actually need to build a lot of stuff in new ways. And America hasn't fully risen to the challenge yet. The story of Clean Line is the story about an entrepreneur with a vision who wants to meet that challenge, but who comes face-to-face with this reality. That's hard to disagree with. We have not shown that we can do big things. We build light rail in the United States, or there was a great New York Times series about how we build subways in New York City, and it costs like 10x what it costs in Paris or in other OECD countries. Why is that? The reason is, that you got to hobble together such a weighty coalition to get those things done that they just collapse under their own weight. And that's a, I think that's a problem in ports. Uh, it's a problem with, you know, high-speed rail. You just got to put, if, if indeed you can pull it together, um, and maybe this is what we should have done more of at Clean Line. We should have had a bigger tent somehow, but our fear in sort of 
making the, the tent bigger and larding the project up with a ton of extra costs was that, you know, we'd never compete in the market and, and our delivery charge would be too high. So um, there's a bunch of causes for this, but I, I agree, we're, we're not good at it. Today, Michael's working at Lazard, figuring out how to deploy capital into renewable energy and sustainable infrastructure. So he's still doing his part to get money to clean energy projects that need it. And his journey is captured in the book Superpower from Wall Street Journal reporter Russell Gold. Did you ever think your story would turn into a book? No, not at all. No. And how did you feel about it after after it came out and you read it? Do you feel like it captured you? Um, I think it did. Yeah, I think uh, I think the I think the book was a little too nice um, to me. What shouldn't he have been nice about? I don't know. Maybe we should have. Uh, in the end, for the last year, we spent too much money. We'd have been better off like not spending that money and hunkered down for the longer term. So our we didn't get the burn rate right a couple of times like that. On the expectation of raising more money, we'd spend more money, and then it would be slow to come in and burn. You know, stepping on the on and off the gas, we could have done a better a better job there. We also missed how cheap solar would become, and we thought we were the only answer in the southeast, and we didn't recognize how cheap solar would be and how that solution could scale in a modular fashion. But another thing about the book, when it was first coming out. Um, I thought, oh man, could we just forget about the last ten years? What, like Russell, do you really got to publish this thing? And because uh, I just thought, like, oh, do I really want to reopen this gap uh, one more time? And then when the book came out, um, maybe because he was too nice to me, um, I was like, ah, this is cool. Like, this is how we humans learn. We do things that are not perfect, and we learn from those mistakes. And and then we sort of we zigged in that direction, ran into some walls. So let's zag in the other direction. So I think telling stories is important because we learn from those stories. And uh, I've gotten a lot, like countless emails from people saying, "Hey, I read the story. I'm like really inspired by what you did." I'm like, "Why are you inspired? Like we like we, we it didn't work." Um, but maybe the effort that we put into into it and will inspire other people to do similar efforts. I'm also inspired by like, you know, like Jim Gordon, he did, you know, he broke his pick and spent $100 million trying to develop Cape Wind and got a goose egg, um, which I know was heartbreaking for him as well. Uh, But I think Jim can look in the mirror now and say, you know what, what I did you know, showed people a bunch of really important lessons about how to do offshore wind in the United States. And that sort of, it didn't totally set the table, but it set the stage for a lot of exciting offshore wind projects. So I, I think progress, and I do believe in progress, um, it comes in fits and starts. And so maybe we're not successful, but, you know, hopefully the, the second mouse gets the cheese on these things. Michael Skelly is the co-founder of Clean Line Energy Partners. He's currently a senior advisor at Lazard. Well, Devrin, Brad, that is the eighth and final episode of this season of Illuminators. You know, one of the purposes of this show is to learn lessons from people who've been through various struggles 
or who've built new things. And so I wanted to take a moment at the end of this episode to think back over the people that we've talked to and pick from our favorite stories over the last eight episodes. Uh, So Brad, do you have a favorite story from this season? It's kind of like trying to pick uh, which one's my favorite child. Um, I really enjoyed them all. Uh, I think one that really stands out to me was one of our earlier ones this season, the conversation with Danelle Baird of Block Power. Um, You know, we spend so much energy um, in energy talking about wind power and solar and electric vehicles and grid modernization. And those are all hugely important, obviously. But I was really just taken aback how Danelle used his background as um, a poverty-stricken child growing up in New York to realize the um, real potential in retrofitting buildings for energy efficiency. And we're talking kind of run-down apartment buildings, local community centers, churches, you know, places you wouldn't necessarily think there'd be a huge opportunity, but um, he discovered that. And I just really admire what Block Power is is doing and, and the approach that they're taking to um, creating and, and really pursuing more energy efficient options. Yeah, I really liked uh, that origin story. I mean, talk about someone with you know, harnessing an early experience to build superpowers. That's a really good example. I also thought that he was really honest about challenges with raising money and some of his limitations as um, a CEO in raising money, and then also dealing with the issue of race as a black man um, in the venture capital world trying to raise money for a venture that, you know, is trying to make money, but also have a social good. So those were some of my favorite parts of that interview. Yeah, and he was very honest, too, just about his his anger in college and the professor that helped him channel that anger. And I got the sense that wasn't a story he had really shared a lot. So it's one of my, you know, things as part of this season is getting people to open up about um, what makes their stories compelling. And I thought Danelle did that. So I really appreciate his, uh, his openness. So Devrin, can you choose a favorite story from this season? Mm. We talked to so many interesting people. I keep thinking though of Michael Liebrich in that kind of neon ski suit and just thinking about how he took this really winding road, but it all pieced together where after business school, he worked as a consultant and was studying cheese and film. And, um, you know, he took a chance on a dot-com startup. And when that failed, he was able to see all these trends emerging related to clean energy. And he turned that into a really successful business. And so, For me, it was just really inspiring to think about the winding paths we all take and how it all, you know, you don't quite know where you're going at the time, but it all will eventually kind of add up in the end. Yeah, Michael Liebrich definitely scores points for having the most novel set of career experiences before (laughs) becoming the the guru figure he is. And there were so many stories in there that I had never heard because I've known Michael for a long time and have known some of his story, but... There are some some really interesting tidbits in there. And he did a really good job of tying it all together. I mean, he was actually able to reflect and say, like, this moment when I lost money, these early experiences covering cheese and photographic paper, I actually learned these very specific things which benefited my career. And being able to reflect on that I thought was really valuable. Very interesting guy to talk to. I loved that interview. How about you, Stephen? Got a favorite uh, memory or story from this season? Well, I'll probably choose our last episode, which was Patty Poppy, the CEO of Consumers Energy. And I really loved 
her story about bringing the company together and talking about how they were going to address climate change. And it sounded like they had a lot of skeptics within the company. They brought scientific advisors in. They brought the C-suite together. And it made her realize, yes, we need to embrace this and not just think of it in terms of incremental emissions, but think of it as a generational challenge and take the hard steps of closing down old coal plants um, early in a state that really prides itself on industry and on coal specifically. And she's making hard decisions based on her ability to get up and question her set of beliefs about climate change. And so I thought that that was a really valuable story. There was a moment at the end of that interview that was really powerful for me. And it's where she imagines herself in the future. She's in the garden with her granddaughter, a granddaughter who hasn't been born yet. And the granddaughter says, Nana, what is climate change? And she looks forward to the day where she can respond by saying, we solved that problem. And for her to be part of that solution, um, I could just really feel the honesty and her commitment to really playing whatever role she can in combating climate change. Okay, so let's think about actual lessons that we've applied to our business lives or the you know our personal lives. Um, Devrin, did you have any story that specifically applied to like the way you think about your job? You know, the episode that I think about the most was Rachel Botsman and talking about trust. And especially now more than ever, um, you know, I was just looking back at the show notes and thinking about how she defined trust as a confident relationship with the unknown. And that just feels so relevant right now with the coronavirus and everybody sheltering in place. And there's so many unknowns out there and thinking about trust as that currency. That means, you know, how Uplight works with its customers, how utilities interact with their customers, how we work together remotely. I just keep thinking about trust and how we can build that both with our selves with each other with corporations and it it feels so relevant now more so than ever that one was our most conceptual interview where we were sort of applying high level thought uh experiments to the utility business and it worked really well i i just thought that rachel brought a lot of important insights into the changing nature of trust and i suspect maybe we'll hear her at a bunch of utility conferences coming up in the next couple of years (laughs) i hope so yeah. Brad, what about you? Anything stick out for you that, that changed the way you think about, you know, your personal life or the way you do your job? I think it reinforced the way I think and how I'm approaching both my life and my career. And it's this idea of perseverance. And it's a common theme that runs through this show. The people that succeed, and even those that don't, they try really hard again and again and again. And they get knocked to the mat and they get back up. And there's two reasons why I think that's important. Number one, in the battle against climate change, the kind of stuff that we're doing is not easy. I mean, look at Michael's example of trying to build a pipeline across states to transmit renewable energy. I mean, that's a really difficult thing to do, and he kept at it. Um, all the things that these people are doing are really difficult, and they keep at it. And I think, you know, just again, look at the time that we're in right now. Um, I'm fortunate um, to be home with my family, safe and healthy and happy, and that will allow me to persevere. Um, and I would encourage everybody who's listening to this to just stick it out and also persevere. And I think um, the types of lessons we've taken away and the things we've heard will kind of inspire me to do that even more so. Yeah. So we're obviously going through this moment right now where a lot of people, families, and companies are going through something that's 
unprecedented in the modern economy and in modern life. So um, I feel like there should be an asterisk next to what I'm going to say. But I do listen back to a lot of these interviews and really love these types of conversations that we're having because it makes me feel like when I'm making a hard decision, I'm like, oh, someone's already done this before. Like they've been able to get through it. And if there's something that I just feel like I'm stuck on, whether it's making a hard decision or getting to the next level in, you know, growing my company, I'm, I know that there are people who have gone through those experiences and they have a solution for it or they've thrown up their hands and saying like I can't figure it out let me bring in someone else who can help me and that's okay too now so I I, I say that you know knowing that there are a lot of experiences now that people haven't quite experienced but in the context of this show I really get a lot of comfort out of the different types of hardships that people have gone through knowing that when I face my own I know a lot of other people have done the same thing you know, and on the other side of this crisis, I bet we'll have a ton of stories about perseverance that we can share with our audience in the future. Here, here. I hope we get the chance to tell those stories together. Well, I think that wraps up this season. Uh, Devrin, you want to kick off the ending credits? All right. Let's bring it home. <clears throat> Illuminators is a podcast from Uplight, a software and analytics leader changing the way the world uses energy. If you like the show, please support us by subscribing and then send out the word on social media or rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also find out more at uplight.com slash illuminators. Illuminators is produced by Postscript Audio in collaboration with Uplight. Stephen Lacey and Daniel Waldorf are our producers. The music is composed by Title Card Music and Sound. Stephen, thank you for all the amazing work that you did during this season. It was a really fun one. Oh, thank you. I had so much fun with both of you. And thank you so much to all of our guests, too, who gave us many hours of their time to help us find the right story. So we really appreciate their insights and, and participation. I couldn't agree more. I'm Brad Langley. And I'm Devon Hobbs. This is Illuminators, a show about the people and the forces transforming the business of energy. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.